Hello, and welcome to What's Killing My Kale. This podcast is a production of the University of Minnesota Extension, hosted by Extension educators Annie Claude and Natalie Hoytel. In each episode, we interview a farmer, researcher, or educator about a timely topic around growing fruit and vegetable crops in Minnesota. Usually we talk about pests, but sometimes we venture into other important issues of the moment. Hi everyone, welcome back to this episode of What's Killing My Kale. This is part two of our episode on Swede Midge. In uh, part one of this episode, we talked with Angie Amborn at the Department of Agriculture about Swede Midge patterns and how it's distributed and possibly spreading across Minnesota. And in the second part of the episode, we're going to be talking with Dr. Yolanda Chen, who is a researcher at the University of Vermont. She's doing some really, really great work with understanding Swede Midge management, uh, testing things like pheromones, repellents, um, and other types of management systems. And she has a particular focus on organic Swede Midge management. She's been dealing with this for a few years in Vermont, and so she has some insight to share with us um, today. So Yolanda, can you just share a little bit about yourself, about your research, and about your particular interest in Swede Midge? Um, okay, yeah. So, so broadly, my research um, covers both basic and applied work. Um, on the basic side, we're really interested in trying to understand why insects are pests. And a lot of it like is tied to kind of how did they arrive into agricultural systems, uh, including kind of crop domestication and how that shapes uh, insect plant interactions. Um, and then we're also looking at kind of evolution as well. Um, on the applied side, um, I'm in the state of Vermont and um, I see it as really kind of my obligation to really serve stakeholder needs. The state of Vermont is very, very small um, and um, it means that, you know, there's not a lot of other able bodies. It's not like you can kind of count on the next person to address these issues. So um, I've always looked for kind of having a program that was both basic and applied because I think they can kind of cross fertilize with each other. Um, and I started working on Swede Midge um, in basically 2009 uh, um, when a year after I got here, I basically connected with um, a local grower, uh, Andy Jones at the Intervale Community Farm, and um, he told me all about kind of um, his concerns about the midge, and he was the first person to report it in the state. Mm -hmm. uh, and he had seen a lot of the research that come from um, uh, Rebecca Hallett's group in Guelph, and then also Tony Shelton's group in Cornell, and he found this, you know, major gap, and I totally agreed with him, which is, you know, there's really nothing for organic growers. And from the papers that date to that point, you see over and over again, like, really, there's nothing for organic growers. And so that seemed like a kind of a, a niche that um, that really needed to be resolved, especially as the midge continues to expand its range. Yeah. Okay, that's great. So most of the people who listen, are, we think most of the people who listen to our podcast and growers in Minnesota are either organic or are using organic practices and just aren't certified. And so that's really, as we develop resources, we're really trying to focus on organic production. So oh, interesting. that's exciting to hear that other people are invested in research. Right, yeah. I mean, I'm in Vermont, which is, has its own reputation, <laughs> you know, being out there kind of thing. Um, but the way I see it is if we develop these practices for the kind of most vulnerable kind of growers out there, um, 
these are certainly kind of practices that conventional growers can use too. Exactly. So with so with Swede midge, actually, um, even conventional growers will find it's challenging as well uh, because um, um, you can use systemic insecticides, but they're only protective for the first five weeks. But you need but broccoli takes 75 days, and so you need to actually protect it for the remaining period of time. And so the idea is using foliar insecticides, you know, might help with the remaining period of time, but they're not as effective also just because of where the midge lays its eggs and it's in between the folds of the bud and everything like that. So it's not an ideal, you know, practice either. Um, but, but I'd say like the early um, use of the systemic insecticides is, is definitely an advantage for the conventional growers. Yeah. So just to give our listeners a little bit of background, can you give like a really brief overview of the biology of sweet midge, where it, you said it lays its eggs in the buds, kind of how it, basically what is its life cycle? Is it overwintering in Vermont at least? Do we know that yet? Yeah. Um, maybe I'll just talk a little bit about its distribution first, yeah. and then I'll talk about the biology. So mm -hmm. sweet midge has been... Um, probably um, been in North America since like the 90s, um, but wasn't really reported upon until year 2000 by my collaborator Rebecca Hallett at University of Guelph. Um, so it's it's found it's spread throughout Canada. So it's in kind of British Columbia all the way to Prince Edward Island, Nova Scotia. Um, mm -hmm. But even though it's been found widespread, it hasn't actually reached kind of damaging levels until I'd say um, more recently since in, in some of these regions. So um, Rebecca and I um, think that there's um, a lag time about seven years between first detection and serious outbreaks. Okay. And, and it kind of depends on it's not like the midge has this kind of moving front. So it's not like kind of the entire map is turning red because of the midge is expanding. But instead, um, it, it kind of depends on if it's an early, you know, propagule, like, you know, kind of a small pod of, you know, renegade individuals fi founding a new colony kind of thing, or if it's this whole front. And now what we're seeing is this whole front is expanding. Uh, and so, so recently, um, just in... Uh, uh, 2016, we saw kind of really high levels, 100% losses, multiple growers um, talking about that, or at least um, on the border between Quebec and Vermont, these are some of the larger growers supplying Montreal, and they had 60 to 70% losses. Wow. Yeah. Um, so now the reports are within the U.S. that Swede midges, it seems like the most damaging populations have been in New York and Vermont because they've been there longest, but now it's found um, the midge has been reported in New Hampshire, Massachusetts, and Maine, and then also in the Midwest, it sounds like Michigan, Illinois, Minnesota. Yeah. Um, and, and so in terms of the biology of the midge, um, the midge is part of the family Cecidomyidae, which also includes Hessian fly. And these flies are known as galling flies. So how they feed is that they actually like vomit or drool on the plant and they suck up those juices. So within those, the, the saliva itself, um, people have talked about these plant effector proteins and everything like that. 
they seem, at least from what we know around Hessian fly, they seem to be these proteins that actually seem much more like plant proteins than mm -hmm. insect proteins. And so through that and perhaps some other things that have yet to be discovered, the midge is able to manipulate the plant into growing all sorts of different kinds of, you know, sh funny shapes and forms. So, so that's how they've produced the gall. Swede midge doesn't actually gall itself, but it certainly creates all these distorted shapes. Um, so, so it's really very, the plant is very, very sensitive to um, the feeding. And we have a paper out that shows that really even a single midge can lead to unmarketable produce for the heading brassica. So like, say, broccoli and cauliflower. And so because of that, you know, our strategy has been thinking about, okay, how can we prevent the midge from actually even laying eggs on the plant? So in terms of its life cycle, the midge is found from, I'd say, kind of, I don't know, it depends on the area, but kind of late, late May all the way into kind of October. So it's always around. It's got a very short cycle, so two-week cycle. As an adult, it's only alive for two days. But because, you know, the generations just start kind of overlapping. So, so really the plants need to be protected the entire time. Um, the midge over uh, winters as pupa in the soil. Um, and so, so there have been, you know, multiple different kind of strategies people have been looking at, like, to try to understand which stages are going to be the most vulnerable aside from the larvae, because the larvae are found in the folds of the bud and, and kind of protected by the foliar, from the foliar sprays. Yeah. Okay. So then I guess just kind of jumping into thinking about management at all the different stages, um, starting with overwintering. One thing that I have read about, um, I think from Cornell, is people intentionally flooding fields at the end of the season to kind of drown out eggs. Is that something that you have tried or recommend, or do you more recommend kind of focusing on the adult stages with things like netting, pheromone disruption, repellents? Yeah, we actually, um, we had an uh, accidental kind of um, experience with that. Uh, we had Hurricane Irene, and so our first year of trials got completely flooded out. Um, and um, it didn't really seem to affect anything. Um, I mean, this was a lot of water, probably like maybe I'd say at least five feet of water that, that was above the midges. And so I haven't actually, you know, explored this a lot myself, but I'd say I don't think it's nearly as, you know, effective for the amount of trouble. Right. That's my guess, just because we still saw midges the next year kind of thing. Um, let's see. Uh, yeah, any other questions? Did I answer your question fully then? Yeah, I think about the overwintering stage. Okay. So I guess looking then more at over the course of the summer, um, one, I think the, one of the most common ways that we do kind of preventative management is just using netting. Um, that has been kind of a problem in Minnesota, just with flea beetles, for example, this year. The growing season started so late because there was so much rain that people couldn't get net out, nets out in time for it to be effective with the life cycle of the flea beetle. And I wonder if that would be kind of the same with Swede Minch. Um, you said they come out around early May, right? Yeah, um, so 
we 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 tried to do some stuff with Remay early on, just you know because it's cheaper kind of thing, and um, uh, then we then we just kind of abandoned that. Um, okay. Um, Why did you abandon it? Was it just too much work? Just because I mean, like when the the plant is most sensitive, when the plant is heading, it's already too hot for the the growers to keep them net the the Remay on. For um, netting itself. Um, the insect netting, we've done the ca cost calculations, and it's really expensive. So it's it's really averaging about five thousand dollars an acre, which um, seems quite high given kind of what um, what most returns are on for organic broccoli. Yeah. Uh, and so, and the, and the the netting is only good for a few years too, which is uh, another drawback. Uh, and so for that reason, I figured um, we've actually collaborated with Christy Hopting, who's looked into kind of more the netting and the efficacy around it. Um, but, you know, it doesn't seem like the growers are very satisfied with using netting as an option. Right. So one of the, you know, key strategies that growers in these kind of really, you know, afflicted areas are doing is just really being very intentional around kind of rotating, um, trying to use other kind of plots of land and to just kind of keep, you know, playing this cat and mouse kind of game with the midge basically. Um, and unfortunately it's, it's, you know, really kind of can get in the way of complicating um, uh, rotations and it's just another headache to think about as well. Um, and so that's why like we see it as like, we really need to find some alternatives that are effective. Like, what can you do in order to keep farming right here? And even here, like we, we we're seeing um, in Northern Vermont, um, there's there's a lot of the growers have actually stopped growing um, organic broccoli wow. in the area just because it's too big of a headache and yeah. there's nothing that they can do. So two things it sounds like you're working with are kind of exploring repellents and also mating disruption with pheromones. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about those projects and kind of whether you, how promising you see those options to be? Yeah, um, so, so repellents are, are basically any kind of compound that's um, sprayed onto a plant that will cause the adults to want to kind of leave the area. Um, and we recently had a paper that was uh, just published talking about how how we went about that process trying to figure out what could be repellent. So up till now, I'd say most people are like, could it be like this? Could it be this? And kind of almost like when, say, if you're sampling perfumes at like the perfume counter kind of thing, you know, smelling things that are attractive or distasteful um, or, you know, smell bad. And, and so we tried to kind of actually do it in a more systemic way, systematic way of, um, looking at how the distance between um, the plant family itself um, and where the plant odor is coming from, how that influences. So just looking at kind of like the big family tree, kind of are there kind of distant, you know, relatives of, of broccoli. Um, and so this is this idea of phylogenetic, uh, phylogenetic distance and looking at kind of how, you know, how far back do you have to look at the family tree to see that there's shared ancestry. So uh, we did that approach and we found some different things that seem promising. And we've done some field trials. Um, 
not all the time is everything completely effective, and that's why we're kind of holding off and just saying go and do this. Mm -hmm. um, recently, um, so we've we've reported that garlic seems to be effective, um, at least in the lab. And then now recently we've had two years of field trials of looking at using garlic barrier as one thing, coupled with a mating disruption um, treatment also. But I don't want to um, say yes, it's really effective or not until we really look at the data. Uh, we're in our second year right now, but they are promising. Um, so pheromone mating disruption is really using um, kind of synthetic production of the female sex pheromone for the midge, and that's commercially synthesized. But it's quite expensive, actually, so that's one of the main drawbacks and challenges around it. Um, but then to, like, release that at, like, a thousand times what an average female might release. Mm -hmm. and flies are more challenging, too, because um, there's a particular 3D orientation for the fly pheromones, and there's actually three different compounds to them, too. And so for that reason, the fly pheromones have been much more expensive. So we've been trying to figure out some, like what are all the different ways we can try to help lower the cost of these um, pheromones in order to make it more commercially applicable. Um, so we're seeing kind of some possible, you know, bright spots in the horizon, but we're not quite at the point where we can say, do this and this will be super effective. But in the meantime, I, I can say that we, we did a spray trial, and actually with the garlic essential oil, and surprisingly, we found that one of the, um, one of the adjuvants that we use was actually surprisingly effective in actually reducing the overall damage. And this is, oh, a non-ionic surfactant, actually. And the name's actually escaping me right now, but that's, that's actually another way to reduce it. But I mean, there's still damage, but the damage was not 100%. Just jumping in here, this is Natalie. Yolanda followed up on this point, and the product that they studied in their experiment is a surfactant called Kinetic. Um, so typically we don't do product endorsements. This is just kind of a unique case where this is the particular product that they used in their study, so we wanted to share it. So, so were was attributed to something in the surfactant, or was it just that that allowed the garlic to spread better? Um, allowed, the, but we had a we had a con, um, uh, a control for the surfactant. Um, no, we actually didn't have a control for the surfactant. This is actually um, unfortunately we didn't have a full control on everything. But at, for us, like typically in the fall we see 100% losses. So the fact that we didn't see 100% losses, we were like, hmm, maybe there's something there. So, so unfortunately we've like, um, due to kind of an oversight on my, my part, um, I was on sabbatical. <laughs> so, so, so there's some, some other things that have gotten in the way of, of being able to kind of test that again, but those are some possible, um, possible bright spots there. Okay. And I think I also saw one publication from you about using kale and clay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, I haven't actually worked really on kale and clay directly. Um, we had um, some failed trials that were basically flooded out by at the intervale. Other people have had some some possible kind of you know 
efficacy around it, but it's not 100% effective. So it, it's possible that it might be useful. Okay. So, so given that for the most part, we're just kind of, everyone is still figuring this out. What is the main advice that you are giving to growers right now who are coming and asking you about management? Yeah, so I think one of the things that's useful is to actually just have um, a pheromone trap to just see what the background levels are. Um, I'd recommend growers be kind of aware of kind of how their field is situated in the landscape. So we have some growers where basically all on the highway around them, there's wild musters. Mm, yeah. So that makes it more challenging because, you know, even if you're treating the field somewhere, then there's still all this other stuff around that supplies kind of midges as well. So um, if growers have access to another plot of land, for instance, that can be very helpful because then you can kind of go back and forth and just, you know, keep crashing the populations also. Right. What would you consider to be a suitable distance? Um, so we we have not directly tested the, the minimum distance, mm -hmm. but a mile away would be helpful. Okay. And especially if there's kind of something in between, like if there's trees in between or something like that, that's, you know, makes it a little bit more difficult to pass through that area. Right. Um, and then I'd say, um, um, you know, using, um, oh, I wish I can remember off the top of my head the name of the, um, the surfactant, but, you know, so, so using something like that, people can try using garlic barrier, um, but don't expect it to be 100%. <laughs> um, both of those things are possible to try. Um, and um, I think the key thing is trying to think about kind of crashing the populations, moving somewhere else, trying to start anew, and then trying to kind of protect as kind of the last resort. Right. So kind of managing the overall movement of the midges and the populations would be really useful. Maybe one additional question is, so in Minnesota, we are only seeing sweet midge in community gardens right now. It hasn't shown up in any, on any farms. Um, and so in terms of prevention, I know there's not a lot you can do if, as you said, there are these kind of two introduction methods. One is just large populations moving across a geographic space versus kind of like small populations starting up anew in a new place. And I think that that's more what we're seeing here. And yeah. so it's more likely that, at least for now, if an introduction were to occur, it would probably be on transplants. Uh, is there anything you can do at the transplant stage, um, any sort of application that would get rid of what's there before bringing it into your field? If, if for the conventional growers, they certainly, there could be, you know, a soil drench mm -hmm. too. Um, but then also, um, if, if they look to kind of just cover the seedlings, that, that could be helpful mm -hmm. as well. Um, cover the seedlings with insect netting or remade, certainly it's a lot cheaper. Yeah. And that could help to kind of reduce the likelihood that the midge is going to colonize that too. Um, they could do kind of a soil drench, so so in transit they're protected, you know. So things like neonicotinoids um, have been rec recommended. Um, but I have to share with you that neonicotinoids have been banned now in Vermont. So oh, wow. 
good thing I've been doing this research for the last 10 years. Definitely. <laughs> um, uh, I, I, and I think um, kind of one of the key things is for growers to be aware of the midge populations on their own farms, you know. So actually having a pheromone um, trap would be helpful to kind of say, do I have midge on the farm? One of the things to, to realize is we've manipulated, um, like we've put larvae on plants, which is not a small feat because these larvae like are tiny, like at the maximum size, the um, midge is two millimeters in size. So you can imagine like first instar larvae are really tiny actually. And we've found that um, all the damage symptoms on the plant show up a week after the, the insect has already left. So if people say, hey, I found all these problems, I'm going to start spraying, was well, actually too late for that particular, you know, larvae that did all that damage. Right. It could be, you know, a sign that they're still there and maybe you want to keep protecting to prevent against additional, like, you know, infestations and everything like that. But the damage has already been kind of done. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of it is just because of the midges feeding behavior as, you know, and when probably some of these plant defectors um, that are that are in the saliva. Mm -hmm. And so if someone wanted to put a pheromone trap on their farm, where would they find one? Um, so we've been getting um, from the pheromone traps from Salida in, in Canada. Um, we, <laughs> we actually ran into some problems from some of the other, uh, one other uh, distribution company where, and I've heard about that from another um, extension agent where um, it, it really messed them up. Because the fly pheromones are so um, complicated, there's a particular 3D orientation. And this, so if companies aren't careful to carefully kind of separate those compounds out, um, th there's kind of the correct orientation for, there's three compounds, and for one of the compounds, there's a correct orientation but the kind of mirror image of that compound, it actually um, causes males to kind of arrest and stop and, hmm. and okay. not be drawn to it. And so if you have that, you're not gonna catch anything. That's so, nice. <laughs> so that, that actually has happened. Um, so I'd be happy to give you, you know, some recommendations. <laughs> um, but yeah, we've been getting, um, uh, our supplies from uh, Solita, which is in Quebec. Okay, sounds good. Uh, so I think that was those were pretty much all the questions I wanted to ask. Did you have okay. any, like final thought or anything else you wanted to add? Um, let's see. Um, well, so I think we will continue to kind of post updates on on our progress and stuff. So. If people have interest, they can um, uh, kind of check my my website. I will be posting things there, and then actually on Twitter too. So, okay. so um, you know, I'll, I'll use the hashtag SwedeMidge just if we have any um, developments and people want to kind of stay on top of the news and everything like that. That's how we're getting the word out. Um, and then also, you know, I can share that with you as well. Um, just uh, if we're seeing anything promising. Okay, that'd be great. Thanks so much. All right. Well, thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of What's Killing My Kale. 
We will put Dr. Chen's Twitter handle in the description for this episode, so you can follow along with updates there. We'll also keep following the research and posting updates in our newsletter when we find updates um, or when new information comes out. So stay tuned for that and have a great rest of the growing season. Thanks for listening.